Have you ever gotten frustrated and told Siri to shut up? Or maybe you had a question for your Google Assistant and then your Google Assistant answered and you said, thanks, Google. Or perhaps you had a conversation with Alexa and just out of sheer curiosity, you asked Alexa what her favorite color was. Why do people do that? Why do we do that? Why do we have this kind of fun emotional connection with this raw computational technology that's in front of us? The question underpinning all of these questions is, is why are we so relationally close to our phones? We have similar relations that bear characteristics to that of human-to-human -human relations. We get sad with our phones. We get joyous with our phones. But why? Why do we do that? The answer, I think, varies depending on the discipline you're drawing from, the conversation you're having with a given person. If you're speaking in the biological register, then perhaps we're wired to respond socially to things that exhibit human behaviors. And this is obviously only one biological response, but let's say Siri has this semi-formal, female-sounding voice that we've heard before in our past. We've Maybe our ancestors have heard voices similar to these before, and we have these kind of impulses, these, these response mechanisms that allow us to respond socially when we have, you know, these behavior triggers. And pardon me if I've gotten everything wrong here, I am not a biologist. But there's also technological answers, you know, purely from a design perspective. If you're designing a technology, you want to elicit engaged reactions to further the use of that technology. If I make a technology, I, I want people to use it. And the best way to do that ostensibly is to have them engage, and that's a good engagement for them, and have that engagement be positive for me, the person who made the technology. There are also philosophical answers. Various schools uh, in philosophy have given various answers to this question, and the previous two disciplines are kind of where my disciplinary expertise lies between philosophy and technology. And one of these answers in philosophy is that the phone, as we hold it in our encounter with the phone, it faces us, it calls us into question, it evokes a sense of responsibility, because in that very moment with the phone, the subject-object dichotomy is exploded, and we, and we feel it. We have this embodied sensation of the dichotomy dying, because our phone will do something that affects us in some way. We feel sad because we saw something that our phone showed us, or Siri said something weird and I got grossed out by it, or something of the sort because it shakes the idea that I am this domineering subject that controls this little object in my hand. Or perhaps I've been scrolling too long and I realize it and I wonder where did the time go? Where was my control in that moment? When you realize that the control is lost at the hands of this object, things start to get 
a little scary for some people. But a common through line in each of those answers that I just gave from biology, from technology, from philosophy, is that these answers have a sense of agency attributed to the part of the phone. The phone is given the role of an agent, even though, you know, for instance, we might come to the common agreement that the phone's not an agent. You know, the phone is a phone. But what might the consequences be of thinking of our phones as agents? This episode will dive into that question and provide some answers in a world where our phones are becoming more and more agential. Welcome to the JCR, a Massey podcast. I'm Noah Khan. be thinking, well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Your phone's not an agent. Your phone doesn't have goals. The question has to be answered before we even think about, should we think of phones as agents? Does the phone even meet the requirements? Now, I'd like to get a little loose around that question. The, is it really an agent question? Now, I'll work through it, but I think there's something to be gained in thinking about our phones as agents, even if they're not. I want to explore that and work through that. But the question, you know, does your phone have goals? Ostensibly, yes. Your phone has many goals. It's designed to have goals. That's the proper function of the phone. It wouldn't have functions if it didn't have goals. Now that, that's a provocative statement because obviously something can have a function without having a goal. We have a calculator. The calculator has various functions, but does the calculator have goals? That's a little bit harder to say. Is the calculator's goal to help you calculate? What if we thought of it like that? Let's see. The phone, ostensibly, by design, it wants to connect you to the people you love. The people who are designing the product, they have those goals. And those goals are manifest in the very specific object that you're holding. Now follow follow me with this, because it may not prove that the phone is a bona fide agent, but it may lead to a useful framework for thinking about our phones. And remember, we're bracketing off bona fide, fitting all the criteria, check mark, check mark, check mark, it is an agent. We're looking for a useful way a fun way, a way that improves our quality of life to look at phones. So what are some other goals that a phone might have? It wants to tell you about the things that are important to you. It thinks about the things you're interested in. It tries to show you things that are engaging to you, that you want to be engaged in. Now, once again, let's take that apart. 
Some might say, well, the phone doesn't know what I want. But is it trying? When we look at the design of a phone, the designers of phones care about what's important to you? Ostensibly, yes. Ostensibly, when you're designing a phone, that's what you care about almost the most. What does the user want from your device? What's important to that user? How can we make this device important and interesting to the consumer? Other goals. The phone also wants to help you structure your day. Your phone has a whole bunch of functions regarding routines and various structures like calendars, reminders, alarms, all of that good stuff that keeps us functioning on the schedule that we want to function on. And our phone is out to help us in that regard. But how does it do that? And I think this is where a lot of us have difficulty, have issue, take up conflict with our phones. Because the way in which it does that is that it might record who you speak to most often. It might collect your search history. And those things can be a bit uncomfortable for people, especially not knowing how that's being used because it's not clear that your best interest is what's being focused on. And that's an interesting feeling because if your best interest was being focused on, and that really did manifest, then wouldn't we feel, in, in the object, then wouldn't we feel like we were in complete control of the device? There would be almost no conflict because it would feel like, okay, the thing I want this object to do, it's doing, and there would be no problem with that. But for some reason, there is a problem. We do feel at conflict with our phones sometimes. We talk about some ladder with our friends, and then all of a sudden that ladder appears on our Facebook feed in an advertisement, and we feel a bit invaded. There's a, there's a kind of affront to privacy there that you're not sure, like, where did I sign up for that? How, how is that a world that I allowed? But I really want to use my phone for these other wonderful, important things that it does, so I feel kind of stuck. But that's one of the ways I believe that the phone takes that subject-object dichotomy and explodes it. Because it shows you that you're not the only one in that interaction with your phone. It's you, it's the functions of your phone, and it's everyone behind that. It's the designers, the, the tech companies, the media, your friends, it's everyone. And the locus, the locus is your phone and that encounter with your phone. What are some other ways? How else might we explore how it does what it does? Sometimes it's really simple. Sometimes it just asks for your bedtime. I know my phone did that. It asked, hey, when do you go to bed? And I said, hey, well, I don't know, maybe midnight. And then it started setting up digital well-being tools for me that at 11.30 it dims the lights and it plays kind of soft, somber music. And that's pretty cool. But is it invasive? 
Well, there's a question there. And you might be saying throughout all of this that, okay, clearly that's different from a human. A phone doesn't properly want things. But can we be so certain? What if we looked at humans the same way we looked at phones? What if we applied that same criticism that we just explored in terms of the way that our phone goes about accomplishing its goals, if we said that the phone has goals. How do humans do it? How do we do it every day with each other? How do we accomplish what we seek out to accomplish? When the person that you love buys you your favorite drink when you're feeling sad, how did they know what to buy? Data. Data. They had data. They gathered data on you prior to this encounter where you got your favorite drink, you got your root beer, let's say, they knew you liked root beer somehow. Now, ostensibly you're saying, okay, I, I signed up for that. But did you, did you sign a contract with the person saying, you know, you have access to this data, you can use it how you see fit? Maybe if they exploited you somehow for liking root beer, maybe that would feel different. Maybe you wouldn't be okay with that. But it doesn't seem that we have an issue with people taking the things that they hear in conversation with us uh, and doing something positive with it, giving us root beer. And maybe it's because it doesn't explode that subject-object dichotomy. Because you feel as though your desires were manifest in the other person. The thing you wanted, you got. And that feels good that feeds this kind of sense of ego, this sense of a subject that is ultimately controlling of the world. When a person writes a good application, what do they write with in mind? Criteria. They have criteria by which they view their own writing as successful. And those criteria are often gained from websites that might say the application criteria for instance if you're applying for an award they might offer those to you and then when you're writing you use that like a phone does that a phone has success criteria that it gives something to you and then it'll test whether or not you enjoyed it did you engage with it did you like it? Did you click, hey, I'm not interested in this? How long did you look at it for? How long do people generally look at things that they like? Did you look at it for that long? Maybe that's what success is in a given technological application. And we do similar things with each other. We have, for instance, romantic conventions. We go on dates. And how do we figure out if that date was a success? We ask the person, maybe. We think about what a successful date might be. There are all these types of criteria that we use that feed into whether we see our decision as a success. And a lot of people have problems with phones doing that, with phones having these metrics to check whether something was good or not, because Ostensibly, the idea is that the metric eventually becomes the driving force rather than the underlying thing that was being measured. 
but in real life, doesn't that happen as well? Let's think about another example. When a person tries to tell a funny joke, how do they know which joke will land? Environmental scanning. There's, there's a look around to see who, who's in front of me. What type of audience do I have? I'm going to scan the environment and I'm going to see, oh, this person might be into uh, slapstick comedy. This person might really enjoy knock-knock jokes. And we do that by associating people with certain environments and trying to figure out by heuristic, because that's what we have to do in the very quick moment of needing to tell a joke, we figure out what might be best. Might be. And ostensibly, phones do that too. That they have limited information in a certain period of time, and they have to act on that information. And there are environmental scans to figure out what might be the best thing to do in this very moment, based on heuristics, based on associations. That might not be perfect, but they're what we have. It's obvious that humans and phones are meaningfully different. I don't mean to say that phones and humans are the exact same thing because they engage in some of the same practices on a high level. But so too are humans and animals. Humans and animals are quite different. We all are aware of that. I, there's always that one little thing people say, oh, humans are animals. I understand, but what I mean to say is humans and the non-human animals. But the latter of which, non-human animals, we still associate agency with. But if our phone was an agent, if we gave that to our phone, what kind might it be? Let's explore that. Phones as enemies. I think this is the first thing that a lot of people think of when they think about phones generally. We have really popular anti-tech sentiments in shows like Black Mirror. In the media, there is a lot of coverage on the ways in which phones are manipulating you and ruining your whole life um, by being in your pocket or emitting some kind of radio wave or electricity field. But let's, let's actually dig in. Let's dig into why phones might be your enemy, because there is a case for that. Phones seem to have drastically negative effects on mental health. There are a million studies on this. Uh, a million is not the correct number, but <laughs> it's well studied. Uh, phones, the effects they have in connecting you with other people, the kind of compar uh, comparison that happens when you know we're on Instagram or Twitter, for instance, and seeing versions of perfect lives and then self-esteem is affected, we know these stories. Also, phones seem to eat up time that a person could use on so many more productive things. I think a lot of us have had this feeling of spending way too much time on a phone and realizing, wow, I could have just like read an entire novel, I could have learned a skill, I could have done many things that I wish I had done. And so in that sense, your phone is this enemy that eats up your time. And a big one, a huge one, a gigantic one, is that, okay, my phone is always surveilling on me. 
surveilling me. It's surveilling me, it's selling my data, it is this kind of big brother that is looking at me all the time. And that's a valid concern. I mean, your phone is listening to you, it's, it wants to know about you, but there are positives and negatives there. Um, but of course, that is a, a kind of antagonistic relationship. That's one in which your phone is an enemy. Another one is that your phone has an actual and very high, in some cases, cost. It actually costs something. You have to buy a phone. Uh, I think oftentimes that's not thought of as a, uh, an antagonistic relationship, but it, it has an actual cost. Um, and perhaps your phone is an agent, but perhaps it's an agent you don't want to know. Perhaps your phone is an evil type of agent, a bad type of agent. And lastly, your phone allows unwanted individuals to reach you. Uh, if you think about elderly people and scam artists, a phone facilitates that connection much easier than if the elderly individual didn't have a phone at all. But on the other hand, what if we thought of phones as our friends? Your phone makes it incredibly easy to access the people you love. Your phone makes all of your relevant information incredibly compact. Instead of a Rolodex of people, you have a contact list. Your phone gives you access to a whole world of information literally at your fingertips. You can open Wikipedia. You can open the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. You can open all of these resources just on this little device that you hold in your pocket. Your phone also gives you the ability to capture beautiful memories. For some reason, cameras are well and truly integrated in the phone experience. It's odd that that technology just has wonderfully integrated so well, but we all love it. It's a technology we chose that we wanted to have everywhere all the time, and it works really well. Your, your phone also allows you to set reminders to take care of yourself, to take care of your mental health. That with your phone, you can do really positive things for your mental health. It has that capacity. And lastly, your phone allows you to turn it off. Your phone has a button. It has a button that can close the whole thing. Imagine that there was this evil villain, and the villain gave you his weak point. The villain simply gives you the ability to destroy them. Would that really be a villain? Would we really consider that an evil character? They wouldn't be very good at it. So we've been jumping around all over the place, talking about phones as enemies, phones as friends, phones as agents more broadly, but the question we need to walk away with, the question we need to answer, is how does thinking about our phone as an agent change the way we might interact with our phones? Because a lot of us are interested in doing that, optimizing our relationship with our phone so that it's more positive, more beneficial, it's a better relationship. And here are some answers to that question. Whether as an enemy or a friend, we just covered both, Seeing your phone as a moral agent allows you to place it on a spectrum that we're more familiar with, the human spectrum, by giving it, allowing it, the humanity that we allow, in some part, to animals. We give 
the phone a common framework so that we can place it among various entities and compare and make useful, wonderful inferences that help us structure our lives. Now you might ask these important questions because of that spectrum. How much time would I spend with someone that I knew drained my mental energy? But perhaps you might ask, why do I interact with people some ways, but not others? And those questions help you understand what type of relationship you want to have with your phone. Does your phone drain your mental energy? Would you stay around a person that did that? I don't know. But you might need to think about, okay, is this person draining my mental energy? Or am I interacting with them in a really unhelpful, unhealthy way that's not working for me? Maybe I need to change the way I interact with this person in order to secure a better, healthier relationship. In asking these questions, you might come to see your phone as a person you have a relationship with and what that relationship should look like based on how that person treats you. Accordingly, you need to also think about how you treat your phone. When you organize your phone really well, does it work better for you? When you help it out in that way? Does the relationship improve? You might want to ask these questions. How can you improve your relationship with your phone? Perhaps when we tell Siri to shut up, just like with humans, we're damaging our relationship with someone we speak to every day. I'm Noah Khan, and you've been listening to If Phones Were Our Friends, an episode of the JCR, a Massey podcast where people and ideas intersect. The JCR is a production of the Junior Fellows at Massey College.